Welcome to The Art of Social Media, a podcast by Social Pilot. We host in-depth discussions with world-leading social media marketing experts that will help you discover the techniques, strategies, and skills you need to use to grow your business using social media. Now, here's your host, Tejas Mehta. Welcome to The Art of Social Media podcast. Today we have with us Jeremy Goldman. Jeremy is a futurist, author, a business owner and entrepreneur with over two decades of experience helping companies in their digital marketing efforts. He also has a lot of uh, tricks on his card in his cards about social media strategies. Jeremy, excited to have you here. Jeremy is currently a senior director of marketing, e-commerce and tech briefings at Insider Intelligence. Jeremy, wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for taking your time. How are we doing today? Oh my god, I'm pretty good. I'm uh, excited to be with you. Hope you're doing great too. Well, doing great. Thank you so much. Jeremy, the first question I usually ask my guests is, you know, tell us why we should listen to you. What do you bring on table? I mean, honestly, uh, I I am a really good person at knowing people smarter than me. That That's all I've got for you. So <laughs> the nice thing is, is that I get to speak to these people and they make me a little bit smarter and I, I can share that with uh, everybody else. So I think that's probably the number one thing is I, I know my limits and uh, I can speak a decent amount about a number of different topics that might be very interested, interesting to uh, all your listeners in the social space. That's very humble of you. Thank you for that introduction. Jeremy, tell me about your journey. Every hero has an origin story, right? What is your origin story? How did it all get started? How did you get into social media and marketing? You know, I was uh, managing the e-commerce uh, divisions for a number of different beauty brands like uh, Kiehl's, which is a pretty notable one in the States. And they needed somebody to own social too. And it was going to be like the person who knew kind of the digital sphere uh, well, or it was going to be PR. And in a lot of organizations, uh, it went to PR. And for us, I was able to kind of lobby because social media was something I was very interested in. And I started taking it uh, on and then wrote a book on social media, Going Social, which briefly hit number one in the world for, uh, I say briefly, because it was like a day that it was number one. That's how fast the world uh, moves, right? And uh, in in doing that, I kind of realized that I could uh, help other businesses and brands uh, start to launch their own platforms on, you know, uh, various social networks in order to attract people and, you know, started doing that, uh, started an agency called Firebrand Group, Did that for about seven years, uh, sold it, and realized that what I really like to do is kind of give advice and help other people rather than necessarily do it myself, But just because you can have a better impact that way, I think, if you're reaching more people. So yeah, at Insider Intelligence, I uh, manage and or write about 60 stories, like very quick, short stories uh, every week uh, for busy executives. Interesting. So... You started uh, on social way back when social was like the new kid on the block. And your book came out going social in 2012, which is like a decade ago. How has social changed drastically from 2012 to now? How long you have to, for my answer, four hours? Okay, great. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, a lot of it is that social uh, went from this fun, interesting thing that you do to connect with uh, people around you to something that brands do in order to get in front of you because that's where you were spending your time talking to your family and talking to your friends. And a lot of it was organic. And 
Now, try to find somebody who has an organic strategy that doesn't also have uh, some kind of paid strategy attached to it, right? It's very, very difficult. So I would say that is one of the biggest changes. Uh, And then I think the other key thing is that a lot of the things that we refer to as social media, like for instance, we kind of, uh, in insider intelligence, we call YouTube, we've always referred to it as like a different bucket. You know, it's a digital video rather than social media. But then what is... uh, TikTok, right? I mean, that is something that is not so dissimilar from YouTube. And people don't really get on TikTok to connect with their friends and to connect with other people, even though they technically do that. It's been much more so about uh, around entertainment. So a lot of the things that we call social media are just maybe less social than they were at a certain other point in time. So it's changed a ton. And those are just a few major examples. Right. And there was Clubhouse as well, which came out and people were like confused whether this is social media or a new platform. And then there are tons of community platforms as well, right? Discord, for example, a very community-centric chat platform, right? And similarly, Discourse, which is like a community platform. Do you classify them as social media platforms or are they a different bucket? You know, there are certain things that kind of fall within a social messaging bucket where they are a lot more similar to one another and You know, if you think about something like Discord or if you think about Telegram or WhatsApp, those are all uh, overlapping. But I kind of liken this to if you think about the big tech giants, right? I mean, you can say that, for instance, Amazon is a major digital retail company, right? And that's true, but it's also a major cloud company. So there are a lot of these companies that are very, and platforms that it's very hard to say they're this or they're that because they're often competing in a number of different uh, sectors simultaneously. So now that TikTok is a social network focused not on friends, but on trends, uh, do you now classify YouTube as a social network as well? You know, so officially, I think that we still kind of count them as different buckets. But I mean, I would almost flip the question, which is, why does it matter so much? You know, all that matters is that these are two things that compete for users' attention, you know? So Netflix, right? Nobody would consider Netflix social media. But if ultimately, if you're trying to reach a Gen Z consumer and you know that they're spending a lot of time on Netflix and a lot of time on TikTok, well, then you're going to build a budget, you're going to build a campaign in order to reach those people. It's not going to really matter to you about like, oh, but one of them social media and one of them isn't. What matters is where is your customer at and how can you reach them and build affinity with them? Interesting. A lot of these uh, Gen Z customers are also e-commerce buyers. They buy stuff off uh, Instagram. And uh, when I first saw people buying stuff off Instagram, I was surprised. So that kind of made me thinking that social commerce has taken off drastically, right? I might be too old to kind of buy stuff off Instagram, but tons of people kind of do that on Instagram, TikTok, and other platforms. What's happening with social commerce? Uh, What's the current trend? First off, I'm looking at you right now, so I can say you're definitely not too old to buy things off of Instagram. You know, I'll send something to your place later. I The truth of the matter is, is that the internet has evolved very differently in different markets, you know? A uh, perfect example of which is social commerce. If you look at the numbers in China versus uh, the U.S., I mean, the China numbers just dwarf the, the figures for the U.S. And I mean, we have, for instance, projections that social commerce sales retail social commerce sales in the U.S. are about 69 
billion for 2023, going up to uh, 86.7 billion next year. That's not insignificant growth. You know, that's like 25, 26% growth. And part of it is just it's off of a pretty low base. You know, e commerce people have gotten very comfortable with. And there are some people who are willing to transact through a major social platform. But increasingly, people feel like, okay, great, I'm going to see an ad on Instagram for a D2C brand that is very easy for me to sign up for an account. I'll transact with them, you know, and I have my iPhone and I can just autofill with all of my information, my credit card information. So it doesn't really necessarily matter so much where the transaction's happening, or at least that's not the consumer's not thinking about it like I transacted through Instagram or I transacted through the company website. Uh, ultimately, the social platforms are, they're solving a problem that doesn't exist for that many users, right? For a lot of users, there's not that much friction between, you know, clicking over to the website. And that's why it's not taking over as much. But in China, I mean, the whole ecosystem got developed a, a lot differently. And, you know, people just got very used to transacting through, you know, social messaging services. And that's why it's a lot bigger there. Interesting. You talked about that. Transacting on Instagram, but uh, what we also saw is uh, Meta itself is curbing efforts of developing shops on Instagram further. And what's the thought process behind it? I mean, ultimately, what it stems from is that it's a smaller portion of their revenue. And right now, it's not like it doesn't work. It's just more so that they have X amount of dollars to invest. They're not doing that great from a growth perspective right now. So if you were going to invest somewhere, where would you invest? Would you invest in the thing that you know you can make more from in the future, but is still a tiny portion of revenue? Or would you invest in your bread and butter and the thing that has, you know, paid the bills for your company for, you know, what way longer than a decade? And I think that that's just what's happening. It's not that they don't believe in it. It's just that their projections. I mean, there are some companies that are clients of ours that are looking at, you know, the forecast that we publish. And they might just say, okay, this thing's going to grow. It's just not going to grow enough to be very interesting to us. Interesting. Are there any any networks in, in the U.S. that are kind of uh, working well from a social commerce perspective? You know, a lot of it stems uh, from the fact that, uh, again, like we said, there's not that much friction in going over to another site. So TikTok is obviously a major player. It's inspiring a lot of purchases. There's a lot of research and actually, we're talking, you know, not that long after there was some really good testimony in Capitol Hill, you know, talking about how uh, there are some business owners who are just essentially setting up shop on TikTok and not, you know, trying to build a conventional website or Facebook page or anything like that. They're just relying on TikTok. So definitely TikTok is the one to watch. But again, it boils down to are people discovering the brand through TikTok and transacting elsewhere, or are more and more people just going to say it's not worth it to go over to the website? And a lot of that just stems from what the user is most comfortable with. Interesting. You mentioned about the uh, testimony in the Capitol Hill uh, today, and literally like an hour ago, I think the CEO's testimony was wrapped up. It looks like the Congress is not very impressed by his testimony, the, the sentiments still are like ban TikTok, national security risk, etc. Do you see that happening? Do you see like a total ban? A total ban? It's so interesting in the sense that, you know, of course, you can say something and look foolish later. But um, the odds of nothing happening, I would say, are close to uh, zero. And the odds of a total ban 
you know, total, total, total ban, you know, and and no sale, whatever. I would say that that's close to zero. But then the question is, so what actually happens, you know? And also, is TikTok able to turn the tide and kind of uh, be able to point out the fact that they're being held to a, a different standard? You know, when you take out the China part of the whole equation, ultimately, there's a lot of uh, things that, uh, you know, Mr. Chu is uh, asked about, kind of like, self-harm and mental health and so on, which are all valid, but you could say the same thing about some other, you know, platforms, particularly Twitter, particularly uh, Meta's Facebook and Instagram. So if you're thinking about it through that lens, I mean, if TikTok is able to change the conversation around it, then maybe they're able to, you know, hold on and give some assurances with this Project Texas thing that they're doing. Don't want to get too nerdy, but essentially trying to assure that, uh, you know, there's a firewall and that uh, U.S. Uh, customers, their data can't be uh, accessed. I think that that'll be a really interesting tightrope for them to walk. But no, I am not. And just to give the soundbite that could, you know, get me in trouble later, I'm not expecting a total ban. And I think the odds of that are uh, very low, but the odds of nothing happening is also very low. Interesting. Let's see how that unfolds. Uh, It'll take some time, but yeah, we'll we'll witness that. Wonderful. Going back to social commerce, uh, influencers play a great role in social commerce. How do you see their role evolving? You know... One of the things that I think has become also very interesting is that uh, influencers are making up and influencing, no pun intended, that's literally what they're doing. Uh, They're impacting the decisions that people are making about uh, brands. Uh, You know, we, we have some data that we've charted that shows that more and more people are discovering brands for the first time through a social media influencer. And that's obviously very important. They're not necessarily selling you the brand, but they are influencing purchases and they are being also, I don't want to say bought, but a lot of the messaging that they're putting out there is you know, highly scripted from brands' uh, perspectives. And uh, that's why I think this whole de-influencing movement has started to uh, show up uh, recently is just because like almost like a backlash against influencers that you know just seem totally disingenuous. Yeah, you mentioned de-influencing, and that that sounds interesting. What is de-influencing? So de-influencing is essentially trying to cut through the hype and provide a more authentic view on influencer marketing. And I mean, it's it's ironic because de-influencing is actually influencing you, but it's influencing you against the culture of inauthenticity, against the culture of go buy this specific brand. You're only going to look good if you buy this foundation. Everything else is awful. So there's you know some de-influencers. And if you see, uh, if you look on TikTok right now, there's an insane uh, number of impressions on de-influencing hashtags, so many views there, because people are, you know, posting about, uh, you can buy secondhand, you know, you can buy through resale platforms like ThreadUp, you know, they're talking about buying store brands that are less expensive rather than a very expensive brand. Uh, And they're often not taking money for making posts like this, which is obviously important. But then the ironic thing is that if you build a following around the culture of authenticity and de-influencing, then at some point you're going to get offers uh, to be bought. You know, sometimes there are obviously influencers that are uh, posting around uh, this hashtag 
you know, in an attempt to show that they are authentic and they're the ones that can't be bought. So, you know, ultimately the consumer is getting a lot more, I think, you know, wise and savvy to the fact that there is a lot of money within the influencer marketing world. Interesting. Without being explicitly explicit about buying the influencers or buying the de-influencers, can de-influencing be used by in some manner by marketing companies to kind of, you know, improve their sale? Is there like a not discussed strategy that uh, marketing companies are doing around de-influencing? I mean, yes, absolutely. There are, I mean, just uh, looking, so for influencer marketing spending, is over $6 billion uh, in the U.S. alone uh, in 2023, according to our forecast. And I think one of the main things that you have to do as a brand is to understand what makes each influencer unique and to try to not control the message too much. Because that's the whole entire point, is you're trying to bring these people in like in on your journey. You can get feedback from influencers before you launch a product. If you try to control them, some of them can be controlled. And I would argue that those are the wrong people for your brand. You want people to push back. You want people to speak in their own voice, even if it means not being 1000% positive about your brand. I mean, you have a total other issue from a product development standpoint, if you launch something and every single influencer is, you know, saying bad things about it on social media, uh, that's obviously not what you want, but that's not their fault. That's your fault if the consensus is against your product. So ultimately, the key thing is to work with them rather than control the narrative, because that's like a very uh, 2012 way of thinking. Interesting. One of the things that I also uh, realized about talking about influencer marketing extra is it becomes harder for smaller brands to get into influencer marketing unless they figure out the micro-influencer game. And that too is pretty technical, requires a lot of research, etc. Is there a strategy for like a smaller brand who's just starting up to kind of get into the influencer marketing game? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the key things is to do the research and make sure that you're speaking to the right people who are aligned with your brand, right? I mean, if you, for instance, are a regional fast food chain, you know, and you're speaking to somebody who has like no followers in the area that you're trying to reach, well, then even if they're really aligned on it from a messaging standpoint, if they're tonally correct, but location wise, they're just completely wrong. You've got to be able to do the research and to figure out things uh, like that. You obviously, the same thing is true about if they're in your, you know, general geographic area, but tonally, they're not right. So, I would say a lot of it is really a matter of investigating, doing a lot of work, feeling kind of unique in your approach, letting people know that you're uh, a fan of their work, showing that you're a fan of their work and not just like that you got access to an influencer marketing database and you sent a note to, you know, 200 people. Because it's really interesting, even though there are databases like that, I think that people were predicting that was going to be the future of influencer marketing and there was going to be no one-to-one communications a decade ago. Uh, and still a lot of it is very kind of like small on a one-to-one level. Now, does that scale so well? Uh, I think that that's, you know, something that you can worry about for another day. But if you're a small brand just uh, starting out, you know, the key thing is to just understand the, the lay of the land and to find the right people and explain why they're right for you. Interesting. Uh, going back to social commerce and then merging it with influencer marketing, right? If a small brand starts up, for example, and the target audience is Gen Z, is Instagram or Meta the best platform? 
Is TikTok the best platform? Should we should they try on more than one platform at once? How do you suggest uh, they generally go? Yeah, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. I think that the approach to go on multiple platforms at the same time is definitely the right way to go. We're not talking, of course, about trying to go on 25 platforms and trying to figure out this whole entire be real strategy that is likely not to work, right? It's ultimately about where's your customer. And people used to say things like that as if like all of your customers were on Instagram and none of them were on TikTok. And the reality is, is you know, people are on multiple platforms, especially when you're thinking about Instagram Reels usage, you know, versus YouTube Shorts versus TikTok. Uh, there's a lot of overlap there. So to understand the mechanics of a few and to try to get good at a few is definitely the way to go for the simple reason that you might be able to see that your strategy bears more fruit on one platform than another. I mean, what's the point of not benchmarking them against one another, I would uh, argue. So uh, definitely to embrace a few uh, and to know when you're stretching yourself too thin, but also to know when you're not challenging yourself enough as a social media marketer. The Art of Social Media is brought to you by Social Pilot. To find out more about Social Pilot and how we can give you everything you need to hit your social media marketing goals, visit socialpilot.co. And then make sure to search for The Art of Social Media in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click follow so you don't miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at Social Pilot, thanks for listening.